The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So very wrong about games is the name of this podcast. And we talk about board games and I'm here with my very good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? As per usual, we are going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about the game that we viewed one year ago, kinda, which was Thunderstone Quest. Then we're going to talk about some games we played this week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and the topic this week, which is saturating the market is the market saturated what is the downfall of that or is there a downfall of it who knows mark we have a live podcast coming up this weekend we're both going to be in vancouver talking with the boys from shut up and sit down that should be fun yeah well one of the boys from shut up and sit down well, at least. well i'm sure we'll be talking to both of them throughout the weekend but at our actual podcast i don't know i wouldn't want to be presumptuous oh that's also true and so next week, there might not be a show, depending on when we get back. Uh, if Mark has time to edit the live podcast that we're going to be doing there, maybe we'll, you guys will be able to listen to that. If not, maybe no show next week. It's going to be super exciting. We just don't know when it is going to land. So please be patient. I will, however, as I've said, be posting audio diaries over the weekend for all our Patreon backers. We're going to be doing a couple panels this weekend. So those of you going to Shucks, as always, check the schedule. And we look forward to meeting as many of you as possible. And as we say for the rest of you, we'll get to you when we get to you. But we love you anyway. I'm sure I'll be doing some live Facebook shenanigans there. I'm sure I'm going to do some sort of unboxing. Walker, don't get arrested in Vancouver. It's going to be fantastic. The fact that I didn't press charges should not be seen as inducement (laughs) or encouragement for you to repeat this. The masses have spoken, Mark. We're going to bring uh, Hansa Tatanika. Those people are going to be there. I'm just going to like, I have our little poster board there. I'm going to set up on a table. So just like find me and we'll play games together. It's going to be great. That's all I got, Mark. Thunderstone Quest. That's what we reviewed last year. I haven't got much written down on Thunderstone Quest. 
Yeah, you were never very taken with it. I uh, I have no keen interest to play it again. I have no fond memories of playing it the first time. I've played it several times in the past year. As I said at the time, it's very much a throwback to the days of your somewhat more elaborate, somewhat more clunky, competitive deck builders. It was very, very hot on the heels of Dominion. The original Thunderstone was, and Quest hasn't really changed it much. The market has very much moved on. The market now either uses deck building as an ancillary element of the gameplay, you know, just slathered in amongst a whole bunch of other things, you know, in the classic uh, Mage Knight mold. Or uh, they tend to be cooperative, or they tend to be super, super quick, a la the Realms games or Shards of Infinity. So Thunderstone Quest is very much a throwback. I tried the new cooperative slash solo expansion to Thunderstone Quest, the Barricades mode. I did not enjoy it very much, in part because I felt it removed some of the interesting decisions in Thunderstone Quest. Namely, in Thunderstone Quest, one of the big decisions is what whether you're going to go to the dungeon or the town. In the co-op mode, you always do both. And that I eh, wasn't, wasn't so hot. I liked a lot of the development work done in the Barricades mode. I thought that the different bosses were very interesting, and I thought that it escalated in a relatively organic and nice way, but all told, it didn't really do much for me. Um, but I still enjoy Thunderstone Quest. How much of that is nostalgia? Who's to say? But despite how clunky it is, despite how much of a throwback it is, I still have fond memories of Thunderstone Quest. I've enjoyed the playings since we reviewed it, and I will be probably keeping it in my collection for some time. Thunderstone Quest by AEG Games. Games we played this week. Well, I got Teotihuacan to the table again with the new expansion. Still haven't played with the new Orange Track, although other people who played the game there that weekend did. They loved it. They really loved the new edition. They thought it added a lot to the game. Why haven't you played with the Orange Track yet? Just out of curiosity. Just because I keep playing with new players. And the game itself is fairly heavy. A lot of you know rules load and to add yet even more... Onto it, I thought, you know, it's nice to, you know, introduce them to the game as is and then, you know, add some, because the other expansions are kind of light, you know, you know, player character powers, you know, just changing up how the pyramid's built slightly. And I really, I said it last time I talked about it, just the way they introduce new ways to unlock your dice, which really, you know, encourage you to do more of those actions, I thought was a fantastic addition with this expansion. So how many modules do you typically introduce to new players? So there's the the player character powers. Then there's the two new boards, one for the steps and the one for the stones. And then that's twice now that we've tried to introduce the round powers, but forgotten Forgotten to implement them. Until, you know, the the second market. And then we talk about what we would have been doing if we had been using you know, the tokens that we have set out. Isn't that a hint and a half that it's it's, not a good module? Well, not, it's not just that there's just, like I said, it's, there's so much going on that, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's new. So you're not, you don't forget about it. It's like, I, we, I, it's not as though I didn't set it up. I got the three tokens ready. I, you know, I turned the first one up and I said, okay, well, I'm going to make sure I go over that at the end and I go through all the other rules and then off we go. And then it's like, oh yeah, those three little tokens over there, that was something different. Isn't that the very definition of an ancillary forgettable expansion? I the s- fact that it is ancillary and that you forget it? Oh, well, maybe. I, maybe if you get it, you know, one play in on it, then you'll never forget it again. Sure. What did you play, Mark? Well, there was a good week for some of my personal favorites. Some of them you appreciate, some of them you don't. I had a great playing of Pax Renaissance. I had a wonderful playing of Tigers and Euphrates. And I was particularly inspired to play Tigers and Euphrates because... Number one, there was someone there who hadn't played it yet, and that is a grotesque sin that needs to be alleviated, lest the universe be worse as a result. 
And the other thing is that... Let me just touch on that very quickly. Sure. Because I, I keep, on sin, I, would you like to talk no, about no, no. Just justification? On, just on that... Where do you stand on the great Arminian debate? On that feeling, exactly. I think I almost... I narrowed it down this weekend. We had a great uh, weekend of gaming because we had our local convention here. But I think I really utilize what I enjoy about this hobby the most, and that's introducing people to new games and new hooks and fantastic... New experiences. I really well new to them, but new things, to them, but but ones that we already love. Yeah, that we love. That I mean that I that I can teach to them. Like it's like here, like here's this new game, and it, you know, watch how it does this one part. And I think that's what I really enjoy about this hobby. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but since no, we- that's exactly what happened in Tigers yeah. and Euphrates, at least from my perspective. And honestly, I hate to go back and pick at very very recently healed over scabs. But hearing people talk about a certain quote-unquote civilization game, namely Tapestry, and talking about how, oh, you don't understand, it's very much a civilization game. It feels like the epic sweep and the rise of, of, of a civilization. You just can't focus on the details. You're losing the forest for the trees. And reading these people talk about it, I'm thinking, yeah, I played that game. It's called Tigers and Euphrates, and it feels like a Civ game because it represents the high-level abstract rise and fall of great powers. And then there's Tapestry, which doesn't feel like that. But anyhow, so I was doubly inclined to get Tigers and Euphrates back to the table again. It was a very high monument game. And for those that love Tigers and Euphrates as we do, one of the biggest things that will influence how the game feels is how many monuments get built. And this was with a group of people that was very monument happy. And then not particularly inclined to defend them properly, which is a very common new player issue. Tigers and Euphrates can be very, very unforgiving. We've talked about that in the review. It's very confrontational, very interactive, very fluid. And if you're playing with an experienced player who's inclined to punch you in the face, then things can end badly. Now, it's not that I was inclined to punch them in the face. It's just they presented eminently punchable faces. So, really, I'm the victim here. It's like, exactly. It's because if they, if they, if they paint a target on their face, who are you to deny them that effort that they went through, right? Quite frankly, it would be rude. I think so. I wouldn't want to be gauche. So it was a wonderful playing Tigers and Euphrates, and I enjoyed it a great deal. So the other thing I enjoy besides board gaming, Mark, is our speech, our awesome English language, and how it can be manipulated and twisted and cadence and how people speak and how their faces change when they speak. And no other game brings this out more than cockroach poker. (laughs) And how you can manipulate that language, like if you just stutter a word slightly or pause at a certain time, how you can really make people think you have cards that you don't. And I really love Cockroach Poker for that. It's a fantastic bluffing game. And watching people that should never play any kind of poker whatsoever <laughs> look at a card and then you just sort of chuckle to yourself because you know they have no choice either to say something or pass it to you. And, and you know what they, it's, it's just a great game. Jacques Zemet, who designed Cockroach Poker, really has one of those amazing careers where he's put out so many very different, very, very, very light, extremely high-quality games. He's done Cockroach Poker, he's done Ghost Blitz, he's done a a number of excellent dexterity games. Uh, He's just amazing, and I really think that if you have any kind of board game collection of any size, you need at least something by the man. Cockroach Poker, I think, is his masterpiece, but he's done so many excellent things. It's a brand new one coming out. I meant to write it down. I don't know why I'm even talking about it because I don't know about it, but look for some new cockroach game coming out very soon to a roach motel near you. Is it by Jacques Zemet? Because there have been a number of roach-based games that he did not put his name on. 
No, I and no. We it, cannot it's, have... under, it's under the same line, so I'm pretty sure it is. No, uh, under the same line, there have been a number of games that he. Had, oh, even Moth and yeah, and yeah, we're not, we're yeah. not his. Okay, well, we'll. It's see. sad. It's sad, really. I shouldn't have said anything. I'll look up. I'll look into it more. Under the aegis of old favorites, I managed to get a game of Sidereal Confluence to the table. I actually, I keep underestimating the number of locals that actually enjoy the game because I've just mostly internalized that you don't like it and a number of other people have taken a strong disliking to it. It is a divisive game. It's not for everybody and it's certainly not for all the time. But it was it was seriously one of the most joyous board gaming experiences I've had over the past year entirely because I introduced it to a new player. I didn't know how much of a gaming background they had, if in anything. But such was my joy and enthusiasm at being able to get six people around to play a Sidereal Confluence. Not that that's the ideal number. You can play with four or five. But six is an excellent number for a Sidereal Confluence. And she took to it right away. She was into the theme. She was the Kits or Kit Riddle. And she was talking about how her, uh, her race is bizarre jump drives work they're basically controlled accidents and it was absolutely glorious and so much training was to be had by all at the end of the experience she looked over at me tears in her eyes and she said thank you thank you giant space squid whales thank you so much for your charitable endeavors and for introducing me well okay she didn't use those words exactly but that was the gist of what she said when she shrugged and said that was fun and left but Everybody had a good time, except for those that didn't, uh, but that was mostly uh, because they desperately wanted to win, and if they if they can't enjoy themselves unless they're winning, that's yeah, their if, problem. If they didn't play right, that's not your fault. Exactly. No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. A good time was had by all. Sidereal Confluence, as we've said before, is going to be getting a new edition. I don't know how I feel about that, but we play with the uh, deluxe, uh, deluxe resources as offered online by Mr. Davenport. He still has some left. You can go find him in the Sidereal Confluence board if you're willing to pay a fair amount of money, but I think it's worth it. Marvelous, marvelous game. I noticed that it is not in the Shucks library. I think it is probably the one game, uh, in addition to Pax Ren, that I'm going to bother lugging all the way to Vancouver. Maybe I'll play it with some swaggers. Maybe I'll just play it with some complete strangers. Who knows? But, oh my goodness. Seriously. It was it was a sublime experience. Sidereal Confluence. I'm glad you had fun. Slide Quest came out again. It's one of those games that just brings people to the table. Once you set it up, all you have to do is, you know, start the levers and they see how it works. And suddenly everybody is in for the sliding night, completing his quests and scooting along the board and knocking his opponents into pits. Once again, I'm not going to go into it. We've talked about slide quest many times, fantastic little dexterity game. And uh, if you have any family or just friends that enjoy fun, this is a game for you. We were several rooms away playing a very frowny, serious face Euro game, and we would hear these shouts of exultation from <laughs> from the other room as, as as people were sliding around. It was great. As the as the enemies fell to their deaths into the into the spiky pits, yes. Well normally I would resent such uh, loud expostulations that are not my own because I am a great hypocrite. But when it's slide quest, I'm okay with it. I get to play Obscurio. Obscurio is by uh, L'Atelier, which is, uh, you know, it's the name of a group of designers, I think out of Poitiers in France somewhere. I, I find it a little obnoxious when people don't actually put their names to designs and said it's, it's some sort of pseudonym of a group of different people. Anyway, whatever. This is sort of kind of Mysterium with a traitor element. And there are a number of people nearby who prefer it to Mysterium. So it's a co-op game, although in Obscurio there's, as I say, there's a traitor. And the goal is to basically discern pieces of somewhat abstract or fantastical pieces of art. I say somewhat abstract because unlike in Mysterium, 
And this is one of the core differences between the two games. In Mysterium, you have these abstract dream cards, and you're expected to be able to link them to, in stages, three different kinds of relatively representational pieces of art. A person, a place, and a thing. All of which drawn by the, the same set of artists, but in a different style. And that's part of what I really like about Mysterium. That connection between abstract images and then three different kinds of, of representational things. Obscuria only has one set of artwork. One set of circular artwork tiles. And so the clues are given on these artwork tiles, and they're trying to clue in to other circular artwork tiles from the same deck. Now, the, the benefit of this, and the way that Obscurio does it, and through magnets, and who doesn't love magnets, is the clue giver actually points to specific elements in the picture. So rather than just giving someone a card or a number of cards, in the case of Mysterium, they have these two drawn off the top of the deck, and there are these two little pointers, and the clue giver gets to point to either the picture in its entirety or a specific element of the picture, and that is supposed to be the clue. That part I thought was cool. The part that's unfortunate, though, is, number one, I didn't feel that the trader really added much to the game, to be frank. We identified the trader without much difficulty at all. It was one of those situations where optimal play, or at least useful play seemed to be so obvious that the trader isn't really in a position to shift consensus in an unhelpful manner without revealing himself. And that has actually been uh, the experience that I've heard repeated off several different games, talking to traders. They're like, yeah, I, I, I never saw an opening. There wasn't really much for me to do. And the other problem that I had was, despite the fact that I like the specific clue giving, it's all the same art. It's the same art to the same art. And so that degree of association I found personally less pleasant. And the biggest damning element, although I've only played it the once... In the one game, we went through the entire deck. We went through the entire deck of image cards, whereas in Mysterium, you're only playing with a subset of four different decks, and so the replayability is that much higher. Now, it was a little bit faster than Mysterium. Mysterium can take quite a long time if you want to really let the game breathe, but I found that if with judicious use of timers or just encouraging people to speed up, you can get Mysterium down, although it takes a little bit of discipline. And I also felt that Obscuria was uh, vastly too easy. We, we prefer co-op games that are very difficult. Mysterium, at least in the rules that we use, namely the Czech-Polish edition, it is brutally hard to win. And the French edition messes with things a little bit, so it's, sometimes it's easier. But uh, So, in short, all the ways in which Obscurio differed from Mysterium were not to my liking. I thought it was a clever variation, but I really do think that Mysterium is the superior product, and I'm definitely not going to be seeking out Obscurio in the future, especially when Mysterium is available. And uh, that was Obscurio. I also got to play another cooperative game with a possible trade element, namely Mental Blocks. This is a recent release by Jonathan Gilmore and Micah Sawyer and uh, published by Pandasaurus Games. Jonathan Gilmore being of... Zombie Game in the Snow. I always forget it, too. Winter. <laughs> Dead of Winter. Yeah. I I'm can, glad you always forget I it, too. I can never remember that in that... In, uh, uh, it's a self-defense Alpha mechanism. Century, to... Alpha, Alien... Real-time dice. The one that's coming from Simon. Project Elite. Project Elite. Project <laughs> right. Elite but that has nothing to do with, with, with Jonathan Gilmore. No. Anyway. <laughs> so Mental Blocks it has been described pejoratively as a team-building exercise turned into a game. You know, there's corporate team-building exercises where you're going... And I think that that is an accurate, although not necessarily fair, characterization of the game. What happens in Mental Blocks is everyone is given a card which represents some bit of data about an arrangement of foam blocks on the table, and none of it is complete. And you're not allowed to show anyone else your card. And so under a timed condition, you collectively have to arrange the blocks in the proper uh, arrangement. 
I really enjoyed it. I hate spatial puzzles, but I found it very quick and diverting. Now, we again, we found it a little bit too easy. We've only been trying some of the easier ones. There's an there's a very large number of challenges. There's basically 60 different puzzles that you can play, ranging from family difficulty 1 to 30-ish and then challenging difficulty 1 to 30-ish. And I haven't gone past family 12 in terms of uh in terms of the puzzles. And I find it difficult to conceptualize what the thing is supposed to look like, which is kind of the goal. So you have to cooperate and put things together. Now, again, haven't played with the trader element yet. I worry that the trader isn't really going to add much to the element. The way that the trader works is the trader has the full picture available. They know exactly what the puzzle is supposed to look like, but they lose if the puzzle is successfully completed or if they are outed. But again, I don't know, having played without the trader, I don't know how much room there would be for a trader to shift the meta, uh, uh, certainly at the, the simpler ones. I don't know, maybe the more complicated ones, there's enough details throwing around that they might be able to hide. So I, I'm interested in trying because it's only a 10-minute commitment. It's hard to, to get too upset about that, and the rules are so simple. It's kind of fun. It's not brilliant, and I don't think it's going to have too much legs, even though it has lots of different puzzles. But I quite frankly enjoyed it for what it was, and so that was Mental Blocks. Finally, I got to play the latest release by Restoration Games. That's Rob Davia's outfit where they take older games and and remake them. They've done Fireball Island. They've done Downforce. And now they've done Conspiracy. Conspiracy was a Milton Bradley game from the 70s. It had these absurd plastic busts representing different spies with ridiculous caricature names. And they've gotten rid of that part. Now, the pieces were nice, but the names were ridiculous. Conspiracy is kind of a blind-bidding-slash-bluffing game, and the way it works is there are all these spies that are trying to get a briefcase back to their home base. But the spies aren't anyone's player piece. You instead make blind secret bids as to how much money you've put on them, and anytime someone tries to move a spy, you can say, well, I have $3,000 on them, how much do you have? And whoever has the most money, or is willing to declare that they have the most money spent on them, gets to rule the day. And the trick being that if you've declared too much money on a given spy, well, you can move them unopposed, but there's a way to burn them and remove them from the game, and then you're left with no options left. Uh, it is brief, it is tense, it is fun. I've always enjoyed Conspiracy. Now, here, here are the, the changes made to the Solomon Gambit. They've changed the map a little bit to make the game quicker. People start closer to the middle, and so there's a little bit less of the initial posturing. That I'm fine with. I think it's it's mostly a question of preference. They've added a game clock, which I think is largely unnecessary. I've never seen a game outla- I've never seen a game of Conspiracy outlast its welcome. And so this just increases the complexity and increases the fiddliness. You have to remember to do something every round to advance the game clock. Uh, I'd happily dispense with that. And they've also given every spy a special ability, which I'm also not terribly keen on, to be frank. So most of the changes to Conspiracy I'm not a fan of. Have you played Quicksand before? I've not played Quicksand. Tell me more. No, I'm just wondering. It sounds just like a more complicated quicksand. A quicksand is like there's a whole bunch of these adventurers going through this jungle, and you're trying to get them to, you know, the big temple at the end. And everyone takes one of the adventures secretly, so you don't know who's who. And then you start playing cards and moving them along, and you just try to figure out who's who and get your own guy there before everybody else. Hmm. Well, what I like about Conspiracy, that sounds potentially interesting, but what I really like about Conspiracy is the fact that nobody is married to any given piece. And at the start of the game, you really have to start making your decisions about in whom do I invest and when do I invest? Because you're not obligated to to, to sink money at any given time. It, it's what you do as a turn. As your turn, you move a spy or you make a bid, basically. And that part is really cool. The tempo is interesting in manipulating that and managing the flow of information. I'm happy that the game is back in print. I'm happy that Conspiracy is out. I hope it gets a wider audience because the core the core coolness of Conspiracy is, is 
preserved in the Restoration Games version. And the changes, even the changes of which I'm somewhat suspect, don't, I think, fundamentally mar the beauty of the design. It's quick, it's engaging, it's tense, it doesn't outlast its welcome, and it doesn't really feel very much like a lot of uh, other games out there. A lot of other games that leverage secrecy in this way often end up feeling arbitrary, or there's no real way to manage the information satisfactorily, but the way that Conspiracy manages information is just, just right, I think. And so it's a very, very nice package. I, again, I kind of wish that the original rules had been preserved a little bit better, but maybe you can just dispense with special abilities and call it a day. So that's Conspiracy, now retitled as Conspiracy the Solomon Gambit. Those are the games that we played this week. And on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So a little bit of follow-up from the Time Machine Kickstarter from Comedy or Not, because this has produced a fair degree of spielkes. Uh, both because of outrage of the core setup of the Kickstarter and because of recently announced shipping costs. And I would like to address those in reverse order. Because we are, I think it's fair to say that as as far as a publisher goes, we're we're reasonably big fans of a lot of Coleman or Not's output, uh, despite our uh, tendency to be curmudgeonly uh, naysayers in an attempt to, to gain cred with the cynical youth. How's that working? Well, the hipsters too, right? We got to, you know, get in with the hipsters. I'm the least hipster person I know. I know. Anyway, so about the the shipping costs. I mean, quite frankly, look, shipping costs have been skyrocketing across the board. Yes, when I saw that they were announcing how much they were charging for full pledges, now it did seem ridiculous. We're talking about like a hundred dollars for some pledges, but anybody that's received an all-in pledge from Simon can tell you, they're huge boxes crammed to the gills with stuff, and that ain't cheap to ship. And they're not going to be doing it through distributors this time. They're not going to be doing fulfillment centers. They're just sending it out piecemeal. So yeah, it's going to be super expensive. At least they've been transparent about it before the campaign ended. They've been letting letting people know about the huge... Rather than, you know, a week after the campaign, and says, oh, okay, well, here's your bill. Take it or leave it. The other thing is that a lot of people have been complaining about their their timing structure. The original version of the Kickstarter was... You, you, you pledge a buck, but then for 48 hours, you don't get access to the pledge manager. It's only for the people who pledged, you know, hundreds of dollars for the existing pledges. Yeah, I, 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 st- I did pledge the dollar, but I'm, I'm very weary that it's just going to be, you know, first come, first serve. It's like, oh, you missed out on what you wanted. But, they, bad. but here's the thing, and, and, and credit where credit is due. They have abandoned that position. It is no longer the case that... That is exclusively for the people who've who've pledged for several hundred bucks get early access to the pledge manager, or, or rather when it first opened. If you have pledged to a Coleman You're Not Kickstarter before, and if you're trying to hunt down Coleman You're Not promos, you might already be a Simon customer anyway. You will get access just like everybody else. Now, there's a whole issue of how many you can buy at once, but I mean, again, quite frankly, if you're just trying to track down something to complete your collection you're only going to need the one anyway. So whether this is to cut down on scalpers or to give priority access to other people, whatever. Look, are they, are they, are they still structuring things so as to maximize their profit, liquidate all revenue and try to capitalize on, on fear of missing out? Absolutely. Are they doing so in any way that seems in any way culpable or sleazy to us? None whatsoever, especially since they made this yeah. change to the 48 hour yeah. principle. And I mean, everything's been up front. You know, they haven't hidden anything. They said right at the beginning, it's going to be this first come first serve. Absolutely. Type thing, and so, absolutely. So I, I realized that there, that we were very enthusiastic about a potentially problematic Kickstarter, but they've made it better as time goes on. And look, 
Uh, this is a way to get those old dogs of war stuff. This is a way to get it out there. And based on their comments, by the way, specifically about that, it looks like there's lots of dogs of war stuff to be had. So best of luck with all that. Of course, we don't know how much they're going to be charging for the dogs of war stuff or anything else. So, I mean, time will tell, but look, I'm just willing to give credit where credit is due. And I think they've done a pretty good job of responding to the criticism. And that's so, so yay to cool me or not for their time machine. So we like to support new and upcoming game designers here at So Very Wrong About Games. And there's this, this doctor that's designed a new game. You might have heard of him. His name is Reiner Knizia. There is a big box game called Tajuro coming out, Mark. Have you looked into this? I have. And I can't wait. It looks like it's very close to coming out. Like it's not as though it's going to be one of these, you know, two years away or, you know, next year type thing. It's going to be very soon. It's uh, some sort of, you know, grab shapes out of a bag, build temples, build stuff. And, you know, it's he's he looks like he's legit. It might be good. So it's Tajuto. Tajuto. With a T rather than R. I, I don't know how to pronounce the Japanese. I also don't care. And it's a it's kind of sort of a tile-laying game, pretty much like Babylonia, another release from the Doctor. And nobody does tile-laying the way Renner-Kinson does tile-laying. I have a bit of a problem with Chidujo, though. I'm, I'm interested in trying it. I'm very keen to see it. The way it represents Buddhism leaves me with kind of a sour taste in my mouth because it is one thing, and you and I can disagree, and we probably do, about how appropriate it is to use a slapped-on Asian theme and, and talk about, ooh, the exotic Far East and all that stuff. you know. So there's Orientalism, and, and we can disagree about that. But then there's gamifying religious practices. And they're specifically trying to leverage issues related to spirituality in a game sense. And that is where I start to think it's a little bit crass and they might have wanted to reconsider. Because in Tejudo, I, I read the rulebook because I always read the rulebook of upcoming Ryan Kinitia games. So your currency is meditation points. Fine, whatever. Weird and silly, but okay. And the victory condition is to gain spirituality points. Basically what you're doing is you're currying favor with trying to get to enlightenment or or impressing so it's, it's it's kind of like instead of impressing some random passing noble person you're impressing the buddha or you're impressing nirvana or what have you and it's that point where you're starting to get into theology and i start to get a little bit nervous and i'm wondering the kind of backlash that that the christian equivalent would get right if you started gathering salvation points or redemption points while you were building churches because look there are tons of games about building churches i'm not saying that you don't get to make games about building churches but at the point where it's like you know christ has awarded you five redemption points for building st peter's cathedral i think a number of people would very legitimately say this is rather uncomfortable and to my mind this is kind of parallel. So all of this is to say that this is very much another sort of stereotypical Knitsi game where it's about, oh, well, there's this historical thing that happened. Let's make a game about it. Fine, whatever. I just wish that it had kept a little bit further away from trying to invoke core principles of Buddhism. Does that make any sense? 100%. Not overly opposed to it, but like I said, incorporating someone's belief into a game, probably not the greatest idea. Yeah, it's, it's the Manitoba problem all over again, although not quite as bad because it is actually the case that the Japanese Buddhists erected palaces and erected various places, places as opposed to Manitoba where, well, less said about that game, the better. In a related note, so Alexander Pfister, great Euro game designer of the Great Western Trail of Mombasa. His upcoming game with legacy elements is going to be called... Maracaibo, and it's taking place in the Caribbean during European expansion of the Caribbean. So, of course, a fraught, a fraught period. But don't worry, 
Alexander Pfister realizes that it's a fraught period, just as he realized that it was a fraught period when he made when just as he realized it was fraught when he made Mombasa, which was about European mercantile expansion into sub-Saharan Africa through gold and diamond exploitation. When he published Mombasa, he said, oh, well, you know, I realize full well that this was a nightmarish period of human history rife with horrors. But uh, this is a fictional version of that where none of that happened. And the collective world basically scratched their head and said, huh, so why? I mean, it's a Euro game. You could have themed it around anything. Why? I mean, you can deal with the horrors. You can acknowledge them. Or you can make a game that is themeless. Why specifically model your game after something with horrors and then say, but no, this is the fictional version where where there isn't any? That's a bizarre form of whitewashing, and I have no like I I still don't know what to do with it. Well, anyway, he's done it again. He's done the exact same thing again. In the, in the rule book for Maracaibo, he says he and the publisher. It's a, it says it's a statement from he and the publisher said that they realized that this was a period con- consisting of expanding the slave trade, of violent suppression and exploitation of indigenous peoples at the hands of the Europeans. And then they say, and this is a direct quote because I could not believe what I was reading. In this game, we are entering this world in an abstract way, using these certain aspects of history, and therefore end up with a romanticized and narrow view. What the actual hell, Alexander Pfister? What are you doing? When, when you are describing your own take on history as a romanticized and narrow view, that's a hint and a half that you need to back up and stop and do something else. Why are you doing this? It is so weird. It is so bizarre. It's not even that I'm angry. I'm so confused. Yeah, it makes no sense. <sighs> I could go on for this like this for a long time, but mostly it would be why, what, huh, what, why, how, what. Anyway, so that's Alexander Fister's next game. Look forward to it. I am. All right, let's get to something fun, Mark, because I know you're like this. Scott Pilgrim Miniatures the World. What? Yes. It's going to be a miniature game. Scott what? Pilgrim Miniatures the World. It's going to be fantastic game. Oh, my goodness. It's vibrating. It's going to be great. I can't wait. We both love the comic series Scott Pilgrim. We loved everything that's come out so far. And uh, Well, except for the deck builder. The deck builder was kind of trash. But but the fact that it came out at all. Sure, 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 sure. Oh, my goodness. Don't you know that Scott Pilgrim is one of the best fighters in the province? Exactly. If it's like a fighting miniature game, it's going to be fantastic. I'm so there for Kim Pine. Oh my goodness. I have. Will there be minis of Crash and the Boys? That one band with Crash and, and the, those boys? And those boys? No, there wasn't a lot, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would have more to talk about, but there just wasn't a lot there. All right. Well, I, I am all excited. And they look like they're miniatures right from the comic. So not like a reimagining or... A, yeah, so, or, or, from, not, or they're not from the movie. Or not or, like miniatures of that punk from Arrested Development. That's, that's right. right. Okay. Finally, a little bit of follow-up about Beastgrave. We talked about Beastgrave last week, which is the new set for Warhammer Under- Underworlds. And a number of people pointed out to correct us on something, or at least enlighten us on something. I had remarked that one of the reasons why I had fallen out of Warhammer Underworlds is that it is virtually impossible to introduce it to new players because there aren't prepackaged starter decks. Well... In the coming cycle of Warhammer Underworld's Beastgrave, every faction, whether it's a faction box or the starter factions, is going to have a pre-constructed deck right out of the box. And so, granted, you'll have to be careful about what happens when you cannibalize these cards for other deck building, but finally, you'll be able to, uh, you know, for any given faction of the new cycle, just shove it in front of somebody's face and say, here, we're going to learn how to play the game, this is your deck, this is my deck, let's go. Well, maybe they're 100% uh, faction-based. Maybe you can't cannibalize them. 
Remember how the the first set? No, came my, in? my my understanding is that they'll all have some universal cards. Oh, well, I mean, there might be universal cards also included, but have enough of the faction cards to make it a complete deck. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know about the specific breakdown. Anyway, I'm very happy. I'm gonna pick up the new Beast Grave set, see what's in there, try to introduce some some new players, see what see what we can get going. So thanks everyone for the corrections. And uh, it being the internet, of course, what happened was one person issued the correction and everyone saw that. So nobody else reached out to us uh, on, on other venues. So it was all controlled and uh, and managed. Uh, but no, I'm just joking. We, we, we appreciate any time people reach out to correct us and make us a little bit less so very wrong. So I'm looking forward to more Beast Grave. With luck, I'll be able to talk about the new set in uh, in a week or two. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to the topic of the week, which is oversaturation. So I'm thinking about there's just too many games coming out, Mark. Too many games? I have tons of bullet points that have no flow whatsoever. Okay, well, here's the thing. Well, why don't we start at the beginning, as far as I'm concerned. You were the one who suggested this topic, and you suggested it under the aegis of sort of threats to the hobby, right? Potential dangerous developments that could undermine or or, or threaten or stall the development this, of this, this hobby. This so-called that bubble that might pop. Well, well, that's just it. Whether it's a bubble or not is 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 a matter of of disagreement or potential disagreement or discussion. So let me let me just ask you the following question: What is it that you're afraid of? What what kind of disaster scenario? And I I don't I'm I'm, I'm not trying to be pejorative here. I'm I'm, I'm genuinely open to your position. No, I'm just saying we've seen it happen before in like uh, comic books or baseball cards or movies or where there's this huge flood and then the market crashes and then we get nothing. Oh, are you saying that there are not going to be any more superhero movies? That would be great. Please tell me that the bubble has burst. No. no oh, that's too bad. Actually, okay. it's got good news that Spider-Man is staying in the... In the... Anyway. Go I'm ahead. sorry. I fell asleep for a moment. What was that? Uh, so, okay. Well, here's the deal. As far as bubbles bursting, this as... Well, okay. Whether whether it was a bubble or not. Bubble is a, is a loaded term in many ways. In terms of sort of a boom and bust cycle or rise and fall, this has happened to the hobby game market before. Specifically in terms of board games, actually. I'm thinking about the years after the demise of Avalon Hill and before the real ascendancy of the early Euro game companies like Rio Grande and Mayfair in a more sort of mainstream is never the right word for, for anything that we talk about, but in a more sustained way with a, with a regular release schedule. So I'm talking about the early to mid 90s, right? Before the, the, uh, Euro game market was robust enough that you would see lots of new releases. Well, for the standards of the time. By the standards of our time, this was still a release drought. But I'm talking about those those dark days. Even during those years, there was still stuff to be had. But compared to what we have now, and compared to even what it was like a few years before when Avalon Hill was in its heyday, or a few years after that when Rio Grande and, and Mayfair really started get go- getting going, it was certainly a less pleasant place to be. So I don't know that you necessarily have to point to other hobbies to wonder what might happen to the board game space. Because it's happened. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be... I don't. I have, I have some negative points here. I don't have... Like, I don't think there's going to be this one huge thing. Like, we've seen some things like... What I have here is like the hook, the hook blitz. Things like... The hook blitz. Yeah. Well, we've seen things like... We're not supposed to talk about sports ball here, Walker. Uh, code names came out, and then this huge rash of word games came out. Or, oh. or uh, Feast for Odin came out, and then a plethora of these puzzle games have come out, right? So where, where a game Yeah, but out, most of those were by Uwe Rosenberg. They were. Well, no, but, no, but that's what I mean. Like, okay. And, and because this market is sustaining that, why wouldn't he put out 
several games of this hook that's working. It's like, you know, he hits hard, right? And it says, well, if this is going to work, let's put out eight games that do the same thing because we're going to make, you know, this cycle is working. So why not hit it while we can? But in the midst of all that, in the midst of, you know, Codenames The Simpsons and Codenames Marvel and whatever, I, I don't know. I don't even know if there is Codenames Marvel. There's one of the superhero franchises. I don't know which one. And in the midst of Uwe Rosenberg putting out, you know, 17 variations of put things on a little grid. We do still have Feast for Odin, which is a brilliant design. And it was not his first game where he where you arrange things in a, in a puzzle-like grid. And so we do appreciate the, the evolution of that. And in the midst of all that, we still have these hyper-niche, very, very obscure games that, quite frankly, and this is, this is me kind of putting my cards on the table here, metaphorically speaking, I'm not sure that all these super niche games would have been published in a market that is less saturated than the one we have. There is so, there's enough money and there's enough interest and there are enough consumers like you and me that is able to sustain some of these designs that are, quite frankly, very bizarre and reliant on a very, very small slice of the market. To be very specific, I I just have some examples here. I'm talking about things like uh, Seal Team Flex, which is such a bizarre coincidence of two sets of enthusiasms, dexterity game and sort of cooperative strategy, that in any other kind of market environment would be completely unsustainable, I think. Uh, We've got games like uh, Assault on Doomrock, you know, some guys in Poland want to put out an incredibly technical combat puzzle game that that, that inverts a lot of the fantasy adventure tropes. Games like Vengeance, games like Citadel Confluence even. Like, I I would, I have difficulty imagining a less saturated market producing these games. 100% agree. There's tons more people playing games. There's a ton more games out. And then my major point is there's some people that are stuck in the middle. Mainly the real, the retailers, right? Yes. Now, what possibly are they going to do? Like, how can they possibly stock their shelves when there's over a thousand games coming out every year? And this is just board games. This isn't talking about, you know, how many different miniature uh, sets there are. And they got to have, you know, carry lines for each of these miniature sets that, you know, last two or three weeks. And now they got this stuff on their shelf. And it just seems like an awfully hard job for them to try to keep up. Yeah, when considering this topic, that is, as a consumer, I think I'm profiting immensely. But I'm largely profiting at the expense of the individuals who used to make the hobby possible. Like, I remember the days before the internet. You know, we would struggle to find fire, and we'd worried about the saber-toothed tigers and everything. But between that, you would have these bastions of retail weirdness, where you'd go and wander through the shelves and things you'd never even heard of or could even imagine were there. And it was, it was kind of a magical time. Now there's still a couple places like that, that I can go and wander around and see things that I've never mentioned, but mostly it's more on like the, the miniatures gaming sphere or like this little bit of terrain that an obscure train gamer or weird, uh, tabletop war gamer likes. And so I'm able to benefit from that, but setting all that aside, I, I, I do have difficulty imagining how brick and mortar retailers survive or more to put more fine a point on it, I have difficulty imagining why they bother, given that I suspect that more and more of their income is just coming from magic anyway. True. And Kickstarter has a huge part to play in this. So I just have, I don't want to go through all the Kickstarter stuff that I have in here, but one thing that sort of popped in my head, it's, it's sort of like creating, uh, it's sort of like split the market, I think, right? Because now you have these weird, bizarre, because we've talked about it in like, um, 
Pantheon, uh, Mystic Battles Pantheon, right? Yep. Where there is no possible way that a retail store could stock. It's like, oh, we have this new product. Can you give us, you know, this 15 shelves that we can, you know, you know, merch it out on? And it's not going to work. So there's like, it's sort of split the market. Now there's these, there's the Kickstarter sort of vein. This is, these are games you get in Kickstarter because you get, you know, so much all at once. And, you know, it's never going to hit the retail shelves. You know, we might put the base game out, but no one's going to buy it. And then we have things that can be specifically labeled as retail type games, like a Catan or Monopoly that are always there or, or, you know, the tapestry that just came out or wingspan, these games that are made to, you know, sit on the shelf and for people to buy. It is amazing. Just talking about how the market has developed over the past couple of years. We, we brought, we brushed on this recently in the context of tapestry and there was a very interesting discussion and sometimes disagreement on the guild about where the market is with respect to what we what we might call slightly more gateway or intro games. Tapestry is by no means uh, an intro game, but it nonetheless is probably not calibrated to the same kind of gamer that wants to play your heavier Euros all the time or things like that. And then the question is, can the market sustain people paying $100 US for a game when they're not hardcore gamers with hundreds of games? And I think the answer is yes. We've gone to the point where the market has fragmented, because that's one of the things that the internet is very good at doing, right? Exploiting fragmentation and catering to a very, very small fragmented market. We can have a universe in which there's 200 SKUs of Mythic Battles Pantheon, and people are happy to do that, where uh, Time of Legends Joan of Arc has 50 different SKUs, and there are people that now have massive collections overnight of this obscure miniatures game system, and then they're then going to put out more. Now, eventually people stop buying it, and eventually, you know, they don't launch a $4 million Kickstarter, instead they only raise 750 grand, and then they call it a day, and then they move on. I'm just not sure that's a problem. No, that's that's another point I have here is that we're going to see maximum uh, like a uh, really lowered output from some of these games. Like they're only going to do five thousand runs as opposed to ten thousand runs. Sure, but I want to do I do want to come back to because you talked about smaller games, more obscure games like Seal Team Flicks. Say if it didn't come out in this thing, then it wouldn't be so deluxified as it is now with these like crazy player boards with the walls. And things, you know, would be flat and it's like, oh, did that go over a wall? Or, you know, <laughs> you'd be guessing. Or if it would come in at all. Yeah. So the thing I've written here is that uh, all levels are driven to the max, right? Especially because of the way Kickstarter's come out. All art production is like through the roof. All miniatures are like ridiculously detailed. Everything is is so top notch. It's almost impossible for these smaller distributors to put anything out because people are getting used to this super top quality product. And if anything doesn't come out like that, seeing as these games only seem to have like a two week (laughs) shelf life, if they don't, if they don't reach these standards, no one's going to be interested in or even care. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's that prevalent. I, I hear you that the pressure for production quality keeps rising, but I look at the market and I see things like devious weasel games, the Jim Felly outfit, right? He doesn't do Kickstarter. He only publishes his own games. And they're super weird. And that's what we love about them. Well, that's what I love about them. And yet he's able to, I don't know if he's independently wealthy or what. I don't know how much money he makes or whatever. But it is nonetheless the case that the market sustains his output through whatever through whatever way. And he's putting out. He's going to be putting out a game about giant immortal cosmic frogs soon. And I can't wait to try it and see it. And so in this market that is Kickstarter driven and it's a drive for, for, for more and more and more and more. 
there are still these independent publishers that are able to put out their own stuff. And then there are people like John Cloudus, who for years put out his own independent small box card games. Now he started to work with other publishers and, you know, that's always the option. But I'm not so sure that this drive is shoving some people out. So there's another thing that you might agree with me on is when these Kickstarter games... No, you're wrong. When these Kickstarter games started, there was hype when it was announced. And then when it came out, there was hype again. Yeah. But that slowly changed, whereas you, they only got the hype when they were announced. And then they sort of, you know, sort of came out and no one, no one really heard about them again. And these companies sort of saw that. So what they've done is they've hit the Kickstarter hype twice, right? Because they do their base game and then exactly when the base game hits retail or comes out, they hit an expansion and put it back up on Kickstarter again. So they get that, you know, that hit and that hype again to, you know, drive the retail sales. Yeah. One of the aspects in which I feel as a consumer, we are being squeezed with respect to the saturation of the market. And this, I will absolutely agree is potentially problematic is there's no longer any time to consider. There's no longer any time to look at opinions or reviews, whether it's from people like us or whether it's even from the, the you know, other other raiders on board game and things like that. Because in the context of, of, of this market, unless it's the Stonemaier game, which you know is going to be reprinted, or whether it's the new version of Catan, which you know is going to have 5 million copies, you don't have much time to make up your mind. It's going to be in stock for five hot seconds, and then it's going to go out of stock because whether it's a brick-and-mortar retailer, which probably won't stock it in the first place, or whether it's an online retailer like some of your bigger online game stores, they cannot keep everything in stock. And so they order a small quantity, or maybe they only have access to a small quantity, and then it's gone. So you know, just to pick a random example, like Vindication. Neither of us have played Vindication. Vindication was on Kickstarter. It gets released. It had a retail release. Everybody ran out of stock in about five seconds. And then there's the new Kickstarter. And then as a consumer, I'm like, well, I would have liked to have tried it. I would have liked to have seen a slightly more mature opinion of people who played it more than two or three times. But that increasingly is becoming impossible in the new release cycle that has been driven by the saturation. So I will agree with you that, that is one unfortunate thing. And the other thing that I think is is missing out as there is... This feeling you get when you not really master a game, but when your group plays a game over and over and, and, and you find different ways to play it or different things come out or different strategies, you know, reveal themselves through multiple plays. And I think this is slowly disappearing. I wonder how much it was ever there. To be honest, there's always been too many games for one person to go through. Even back in the dark ages of, you know, again, just after the death of Avalon Hill and before uh, before the, the, the domestic market picked up again, there was never enough time no. to, to master all the... Like, people are still mastering games. Like, there are hardcore hobbyists who play nothing but Terraforming Mars, and I respect that. That's fine. I mean, I would have picked a better game, but, and that's cool. If we wanted, look, we, we're in a different case. We're, we're reviewers. We, to, to a large extent, even if we wanted to, it would be irresponsible for us to say, like, you know, it's screw it. I'm going to spend three months not caring about new releases and I'm just going to play the things that I know are brilliant. But look, we didn't do that before either. 
And we, I didn't do that 10 years ago when the release schedule was nowhere near as, 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 as hyped as it is now. Now, there are still games that I played 50, 60 times. We turn back to them on the reg. But it's, it's a matter of, of just what it is you want out of the market. I've said this time and again. I love having a big and varied collection. Does it mean that I don't master a given game? Eh, maybe not. But we look, there was never time to play all the games. That's basically my point. My last point I'm going to make is the hype. Because I am the hype machine. And I'm... The reason we started this podcast is that these games keep coming out and they get this massive hype and then they disappear. There are so many games that like Coimbra and Blackout and how many games have we heard about in the last year that we just have not heard about again that have just faded into obscurity because all of these people gave it this massive hype when it came out and then just abandoned it or it really wasn't as good as they made it out to be. Again, I think this has always been there. I mean... So what's the corrective? What what do you think in in the context of hype specifically, and then we can broaden it later? What do you what do you think a better version of the world would be? No, I'm just saying the no no, no I mean people, it. like no, I'm not no, I'm no, not no, being no, I'm not being snide. No, you're not. Be, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't replying to be snide. I'm just saying people need to start reading the rules more. Need to find out about games more. Need to you know look at with a sense you know not fall for the next big hype. That seems like a human nature problem rather than a market problem. I suppose. To a certain extent, there is more information now available than there ever has been. I look at those old issues of The General from 1984 and 1985, and Avalon Hill is hyping up their next game, as, as well they should. Look, publishers are going to hype their game. That's that's fine. And if you wanted to try the newest, greatest Avalon Hill game, you had to you know write off to, to Maryland and, and have it shipped to you, and or you get a catalog with a self-addressed stamped envelope, and... You know, haven't helped you if there were any errata because you weren't going to find any. At least now, in this overabundance of of games, there's also an abundance of information. And whether someone is wise enough to not read the full Kickstarter page and not watch those Kickstarter paid promotional videos of these two people with a camera and smiling faces that have been around for five minutes and won't be around for another ten... I don't know that it's a difference in kind from from other advertising models, to be honest. When a new game comes out, my pattern has been the same for decades. I read the rules, and I see what I think of it. Now, there might be some exceptions, like the Scott Pilgrim game I'm probably going to get regardless, but that's a separate issue entirely. I mean, that, 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 that's really independently of how saturated the market is. Well, that, that, that's another thing. It can be looked at as a totally separate thing. Maybe it's not. It, maybe the game doesn't matter. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a collectible thing, because, like, in the in the case of comic books and baseball cards, some people didn't really care what picture was on them or or what the story was. It's it's you know it's the next coolest thing. I want it in my collection. I want it on my shelf. That box art is fantastic. Or just having it, you know, because you want it. And I maintain, and this is this is the relentlessly apologetic consumer in me. I maintain that's okay. You know. For whatever sparks joy in your physical possessions, that's okay. Like, if you like having that pretty thing on your shelf, that's cool. Like, people spend a lot of money on ornaments of all kinds. And just because the ornament has an unused board game component in the... In the well, one could talk about conservation and uh, petroleum byproducts, whatever. That's a separate issue. But at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned... If you look at other hobbies... You talk about baseball cards. I Someone brought up to me knitting. Right, knitting is also a relatively niche hobby. People who knit for 
as a, as a hobby as opposed to for subsistence. Not many people in the developed world have to knit their own clothing anymore. Usually it's far, far cheaper to buy clothing than it is to knit it. But knitting has also gone through boom and bust cycles. And even at the darkest of times, and even if the dark times come back, I am optimistic that thanks to the existence of the internet, we're still going to have weirdos like Jim Felly. Kickstarter has democratized the field to a considerable extent. And even if it's the case that in the next 10 years, something happens that we're not going to see these big hyper-produced, you know, Simon declares bankruptcy. We're not going to see any more individual minis projects anymore. I think we'll be fine. I mean, I think insofar as uh, you, in, in some ways, some of the problems you've identified are their own correctives. If these things go away, if the hype machine starts to die out, if release schedule starts to slow down, if people aren't able to produce giant monstrosities of plastic anymore, I think we'll be okay because we still find enjoyment over relatively sparse games of cardboard production anyhow. So if that's what we go back to, I think we'll be okay. Are you saying balance will be found, Mark? That's madness. Balance is never found. Again, I would ask you if you could wave a magic wand and change various things about the market. I don't. I don't have any particular negative about the market. I think the market is. I have the exact same thing. What I just said to myself, or what I just said to you. I. I think that there are so many more people playing games. the The market finds its own balance, right? If people aren't buying these games, then these these people will stop making them. If they're not, they're in it to make money. If they're not making money, then then they're going to stop making games. Period. <laughs> well, on that note of cynical optimism, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. You can also find us in Vancouver next weekend. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>